So just a quick thank you to and Jamie Lilly. Come on, yeah? I know. If you don't know why this is great, you weren't here last week. Come on. So I talked about the light bright. It was a sermon illustration for us, and I got one. I talked about it, and I got one. Tonight I'd like to talk to you about the McLaren 570 GT. Any color. And that's just to help you remember. Orange and black would be really cool. Just saying. Hey, too, I don't know if Doug and Marley Collins are here, but just a big shout-out to Doug Collins. You see the new sign coming in? If you came in through, I know. Can you just give it up for Doug? He works for a sign company here in Newport News, so if you ever need sign work for your family, uh, for your business, uh, any organization, they do amazing work, and so uh, they got that sign up for us this week, so did such a, such a good job. So, um, so I am, I'm one of the licorice jelly bean people, and so I'm just, just like to say that, that uh, I'm, I'm mad at Chris House because when I raised my hand, he whispered in my ear, there's something wrong with your soul. <laughs> I was like, who just said that? Who said that? There's something wrong with your soul. I turned around. I was like, oh, Chris House, right there. Yeah, uh-huh. Yep. Like, jelly beans, so good. Hilarious. Hey, so we're in this, uh, this series on, on discipleship, and uh, we're going to be in this series. We'll, we'll pull out of it, like for Easter. We'll take a break uh, from it for Mother's Day. Uh, but we're going to be in this series for a long time. And, uh, and I recognize, it just as we get back into it, we've been into it for several weeks now, I recognize there's a, there's a confrontational nature to this series because discipleship makes demands of us. And this is just part of who we are as a church, is that we want to be unapologetic about the demands that God makes of us. We don't want to, we don't want to shy away from these, these demands, because what we believe is if, if we give ourselves to these demands that Scripture has for us, we're going, to dis, we're going to discover a fulfillment and a meaningfulness of this life that we would otherwise forego. It's why the message part of our vision as a church is heaven now, heaven forever. The heaven that's to come is purely based on the grace of Christ, right? That's it. You can't earn it. You can't work for it. We make a vow of devotion to Christ, and heaven is promised to us. But the heaven now part that takes some effort. It takes some work on our behalf. It means that we begin to engage our will to live up to these expectations that God has for us, knowing that we're still going to fall short. But the revelation that we're going to fall short can't be permission to not try. Right? We've got to be willing to engage this invitation of discipleship. And so uh, if you're not familiar, if you're new to the church, we have a, a model of discipleship that we're excited about that we've been developing for years now. We just launched a website this year called letspraxis.com. It explains what that word means, where it comes from, uh, the verse in the Bible that we draw that out of. It walks you through the, the, the four components of our discipleship process, the one, the six, the 12, and the 24. Uh, the 12 represent uh, what we call pathways, or what many people would call spiritual activities. And that's kind of where we, we've settled in for a little bit for this series. We started with virtues, now we've shifted to pathways. At some point in this series, we'll dig around to the commands a little bit and maybe reach all the way back to the opening invitation. But the, the pathway that we're talking about, that we started talking about last week, and we're talking about tonight, is the pathway of gathering. Let me just read you the other 11, just to give you a frame of reference for when we say pathway, what we're talking about. Worship, scripture, prayer, fasting, 
relationship, gathering, reaching, accountability, service, rest, stewardship, and generosity. These 12 pathways must be present in our lives. All 12 of them, not a buffet. I'm not going to take these two, leave out the other 10. I need, if I'm going to be healthy uh, spiritually, if I'm going to move forward in this journey of discipleship, then I need to engage all 12 of these pathways in my life. And so I was praying this week, and one of the things I felt like that God challenged me just to share with you, and as he was challenging me when we were mentioning these pathways, is to remember that what's waiting for you 30 years from now, what's waiting for you 10 years from now, What's waiting for you five years from now is dependent upon the ground that you're going to cover in these pathways this year. Right? There's breakthroughs in prayer that's waiting for you in 10 years that's dependent upon the laboring of prayer that you do today. There's, there's revelation in Scripture that's, that's waiting for some of you down the road, 50 years down the road. You, and you know what's waiting for you to get there? you got to cover the ground in the Bible for these 12 months and the next 12 months. So some of these pathways, it is about the here and now. But a lot of the pathways, it's about getting you ready for what's to come. That's why we call them pathways. You've got to cover the distance for this year so that you can cover the distance for next year and so on and so on for the rest of your life. Last week we had some fun talking about rivalries and we used that to set up this idea that there's a rivalry that's taking place in all of us. It's the rivalry at the end of every week where you begin to decide whether or not you're going to come to church. Right? There's a voice inside of you that says, I can't wait to get there. And then there's a voice inside of you that says, I'm not going. And so last week, we began to talk about how we've got to win that rivalry. We've got to win that fight. We've got to win that battle. And Psalm 122.1, which is going to pop up on the screen here, is that we're going to work through it again together. I think we're going to get through two of these. There's seven commands that God puts in this one little verse. And we did uh, three of them last week. Be glad, choose good friends, and guard your heart. And then time permitting, tonight we're going to do lead and follow, and then be all in as we dig through this psalm together. So Father, we just pray that we would give you permission to challenge us tonight. That we would not shrink back from the conviction that your Holy Spirit wants to bring to our lives. That we understand, God, that in order for these 12 pathways to be prominent in our lives, it's going to take change, it's going to take effort, it's going to take sacrifice, it's, it's, it's going to mean that I've got to make some practical decisions this coming week in order for those 12 pathways to be prominent in our life. And so, Father, as we unpack this psalm and, and, and dig into this idea of gathering, Father, I pray that this pathway would characterize who we are, and that we would always win this rivalry, that we would always win this battle, that when that voice comes to to us and says, don't go, that we would silence it in Jesus' name, and that we would always race towards community to be with the family of God in Christ's name. Come on, and everybody said, amen, amen. So anybody remember how we finished last week? What's the April challenge? The April challenge is what? Four out of five, right? There's five Saturdays in April. So for those of you where you struggle with gathering, just to give you a practical goal, give me four out of five Saturdays in April, in April, so... I don't know how I feel about preaching on April Fool's Day, but I just want you to know that everything that I'm going to say tonight is not a joke. Okay, just for the record. All right. 1 Corinthians 11 and 1. Somebody say lead and follow. 
lead and follow. So what we're saying is that, that I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. There are seven commands that God packed into this one little verse. So we're going we're gonna to unpack let us, and then we're going to unpack go into, time permitting, if we get to both of those. And then next week we'll do the house, and then we'll do of the Lord. And again, we did the first part last week, which you can get on the podcast. I know we always go faster than what you prefer if you're a note taker, and the PDF of these uh, sermons are always online, and you can get it through our website, through the podcast page. And if you need help in how to do that, then let us know. We'd be more than happy to do that for you. So 1 Corinthians 11.1 1 says, you should imitate me just as I imitate Christ. In some translations, it says, you should follow me as I follow Christ. Follow me as I follow Christ. Let me share this thought with you. Your us and they have two other components. We talked about this last week, right? When we said, they said. So this, the, the people that you're walking with, the community of the people that you're living with, your us and your they have two other components. Last week we talked about the people that you're walking with. But there's two other components to the community that we connect ourselves with. And that's those that are leading us and then those that are following us. So we have people that are walking with us, then there are people that are leading us, and then there are people that we should be leading. That's this idea of they and us. There's three groups of people that are in our community together. And part of that is connected to 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, which is the one invitation, by the way, for us for launching out our discipleship model, this idea of follow me as I follow Christ. In order for that statement to be true, there are people that are leading Paul, there's people that Paul is walking with, and there are people that Paul is leading. 1 Corinthians 12, 28. Now, we're going we're gonna to get into some weighty stuff here tonight. So if we get over your head a little bit, don't give up. Uh, hang in there with us. And if you've got questions, you can let me know, and uh, I'll answer the questions that you have. We're easy to get a hold of. Come on here at City Life. Accessible leadership. So important. All right, 1 Corinthians 12, 28. Here are some of the parts God has appointed for the church. Now, here's the list. Listen to the list that Paul gives. First apostles, second prophets, Third are teachers, then those who do miracles, those who have the gift of healing, those who can help others, those who have the gift of leadership, and those who speak in unknown languages. Now, this list that Paul gives here is that the back end of 1 Corinthians 12, which is one of the most debated uh, texts in the Bible as far as what on earth is Paul trying to say. Now, what we teach, and if you've been around City Life for any amount of time, then you know that we teach that 1 Corinthians 12 is broken up into three distinct parts. And Paul gives us a clue to how we're supposed to understand 1 Corinthians 12 through verses 4 through 6. Now, I'm going to read this out of the New King James because I think they do a better job of rendering the Greek here. 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 6. There are a diversity of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are difference of, differences of ministries, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of activities, but the same God who works all in all. Now, Paul here is giving us the outline for the rest of this chapter. He's saying, I'm going to talk about a diversity of gifts. I'm going to talk about difference of ministries. And then I'm going to talk about a diversity of activities. And, and to help us understand the word activity, I'm going to encourage you to insert the word assignment there. So Paul talks about gifts. We're not going to talk about that tonight. Then he talks about ministries. We're not going to talk about that in detail tonight. But then he talks about this idea of assignments. And that's what I want to talk about just briefly for a moment. We see lists similar to this in Romans 12 and also in Ephesians 4. Romans 12 and Ephesians 4. And I think what leads to the confusion for this chapter in the Bible is what happens to many other texts in the Bible. I like to use the word, this phrase, that we have a tendency to overlist the Bible. Meaning that we focus on the list instead of the principle that's trying to be imparted to us. 
And, and so if we overlist the Bible, we think that that list is the, is the only list that pertains to the principle. Meaning that the list that's given to us, that that's it. Amen, Reagan. Come on. Jesus' name. She just was telling her dad, you shouldn't have said that to Pastor Fred about his soul. Because she's going she's gonna to grow up liking licorice jelly beans too, right? Just to spite you. I know. So, so, so there's this, the, the, right, this is what we do in the Bible. We take these lists and we say, this is the only thing that God wants to say to me about this. And what we believe is so much of the Bible is, is fill in the blank. Meaning that there's a principle that God is trying to teach. And then he gives us examples through the list. And so what I believe, and what I've taught here many times before, is that when you read 1 Corinthians 12, the emphasis, wow, my voice is changing at 50. I'm 13. All right. <clears throat> the emphasis here in, in verse 28, I believe, is not supposed to be on the assignments. I think it's supposed to be on the numbers. I think what Paul's trying to focus in on here is the idea of first, second, third, then, and those. And what Paul is giving us, what we see in so many other areas of Scripture, is the idea of a concentric circle model of leadership. He's saying that you're going to have to have directive leaders in a church. And some of those might have an apostolic gifting on their life. You're going to have other people that are leaders in the church, and some of those might have a prophetic gifting on their life. The reason why I believe this is because when you get to Ephesians 4, which for decades this idea of fivefold ministry has swept through the church, and I'm not saying that's wrong. What I'm saying is I think that's an example of overlisting. The principle is manifold ministry in the church. It, because if you look at Ephesians 4, there's the gifting of evangelists, but yet Paul doesn't include that here in 1 Corinthians 12. And then there's things that he lists here in 1 Corinthians 12 that aren't listed in Ephesians 4. And then he was the, also the person that God used to give us the book of Romans, and you see some other giftings that are there that are not listed in either of these. I think what God is trying to say to us is that you have to have leaders in the church, and those leaders are going to have a variety of gifts operating inside of them. If you overlist the Bible in this text, in texts like this, what happens is you begin to put people in positions of leadership who are not called to leadership because there is a gifting that matches one of these in the Bible. I've met some evangelists that are terrible leaders, and they've done a really poor job of leading a church because they had the gifting of evangelism, but they did not have the call to leadership on their life. Right? I've known people that move in the prophetic, but they're not great at leadership. And if you, if you overlist these texts, you will identify these types of giftings and you will thrust them into places of leadership when they don't belong. The other, the other thing that happens here, which is the other consequence, is people who don't move in these specific giftings are excluded from leadership because there's a bias that that gifting is not a leadership gifting in their life. These last few verses here in 1 Corinthians 12 is about everybody has an assignment for the church. And if you work from the bottom of 1 Corinthians 12 up, it makes more sense, right? I have an assignment. That assignment is determined by my ministry, right? And, my, and the ministry that I have, my assignment determines my ministry. I said that wrong. My assignment determines my ministry. And the ministry that I have does not exclude me from God using me outside of my assignment because I have the power of the Holy Spirit operating in me. 
right? So when you get to what's called the manifestational gifts, which is the very first list, this is Paul saying, it doesn't matter what your assignment is that has determined your ministry, live your life with an expectation that God might ask you to move outside of your assignment in a moment because the Holy Spirit is going to use you to manifest God in a supernatural way. I have an assignment. You have an assignment. That assignment determines my ministry. And as I walk through life, I'm always a candidate to be used for any ministry if God's the one that points to me. I don't get to say to him, this isn't my assignment. He says it is your assignment today. It doesn't mean that it's your assignment for the rest of your life. God might use you in the, in the working of a miracle, so let's say on a, on a mission trip. That might be the beginning of the revelation of your assignment, but not necessarily so. It could also be that God just used you in that moment. Eric Reese's book, one of my favorite books, I recommend it all the time, Shape, Spiritual Gift, H for Heart's Desire, uh, A for Natural Ability, P Personality, Life Experience, helps you understand how God has shaped you and formed you so that you can figure out what your assignment is so you can give yourself to the ministry that he's put into your hand. There must be leaders in the church. And this is what I would say to you as we are bringing it back around to gathering. There are times when all of you are going to be called to lead. It might not be your assignment. It might not be that you're called to be a directive leader in the church. But every person here who's made a vow of devotion to Christ at some point in your life, God's going to ask you to lead. Galatians 2, 11 through 13. But when Peter came to Antioch, I had to oppose him. This is Paul writing. I had to oppose him to his face for what he was doing very wrong. For what he was doing was very wrong. When he first arrived, he ate with the Gentile believers who were not circumcised. But afterward, when some friends of James came, Peter wouldn't eat with the Gentiles anymore. He was afraid of the criticism from these people who insisted on the necessity of circumcision. As a result, other Jewish believers followed Peter's hypocrisy, and even Barnabas was led astray. Let's contemporize this. When Peter came to Antioch, I had to pose him to his face for what he did was very wrong because when he first arrived, he ate with black believers who were not of the same color of his skin. But afterward, when some other white folks came along, Peter wouldn't eat with the black people anymore. He was afraid of the criticism of his white friends who insisted on the necessity of segregation. As a result... Other white people were led astray by Peter's hypocrisy. Even by, are you with me? We can just keep filling in this blank. Are you tracking? We can just keep doing it over and over and over again. It's a principle that's being taught, and it's a fill in the blank. How about I'll give you another one? Okay. When Peter came to Antioch, I had to pose him to his face for what he did was very wrong. For when he arrived, he came to church every Saturday. But afterward, when some friends came who weren't into church every weekend, he stopped coming. And he was afraid of the people who didn't come to church, so he stopped, and so did Barnabas. Yeah, that one stings a little bit, doesn't it? Especially if you're at home now listening to the podcast on Wednesday. Yeah. Sometimes you're Paul in that story. Sometimes you're Peter. Sometimes you're Paul in the story. Sometimes you're Peter. Lead and follow. There are three groups of people in our they and in our us from this verse here. Those that we're following, those that we're walking with, and those that are following us. And sometimes those people are shifting around in that group. 
There are times, there are times in your life where you might have to lead even the, even the people that you're following. This is what you're seeing even happening now, that, that, that Peter was, was, was one of the directive leaders, one of the central people that birthed the church, and Paul is just coming into his notoriety. What you have here, an example, is somebody who's following now begin, has to lead the person who's leading them. This is how it works. This is what being in a community is all about. One of the reasons why people stop gathering is that we lose sight of this idea that sometimes I have to lead and sometimes I have to follow and sometimes leaders don't like to follow and sometimes followers don't like to be led. Sometimes people who are following don't like when God uses them to lead others because they think that's outside of their realm of ability. We have to be willing to lead and follow as we walk in community with one another. If we're going to overcome this rivalry, this, this don't-go voice that's inside of us, we need people who are willing to lead us, and we need to be willing to reach out to others. If you find yourself where you begin to, you're here all the time, and then all of a sudden you're not here all the time, I hope that somebody recognizes that and reaches out to you. That gathering has begun to slip in your priority of your week, and you need people to lead you to get you back on track. It might be that you're here and you've noticed that someone has, has, has been gone for a while. And there might be a reason for that. They might be out of town. They might be in a crisis. It might be that shame has pulled them away. This is one of the reasons why we're supposed to lead, not just to confront someone, because sometimes when we reach out, that's when we have the opportunity to really care for them. And sometimes when people pull back, what they don't realize is deep inside, they want to know, will someone even notice? Lead and follow. When it comes to gathering. Somebody say be all in. So let us go into. Go into I think is God's way of saying to us be all in. Matthew 16, 18 says now I say to you that you are Peter. Which means rock and upon this rock I will build my church. And all the powers of hell will not conquer it. That's an amazing promise isn't it? Now, we're not going to go into great detail here. We've, we've taught this many times before. It's part of one of our welcome weekend messages that we do. But suffice it to say that when, when Jesus calls him Peter, that word in the Greek means an individual rock. It, so, sometimes people render this text little rock, big rock, but that's, that, that's not an accurate rendering of this text. Peter means an individual rock, a rock that stands alone. And then the second word he uses for rock is the Greek word for an outcropping of rocks, which means there's a, a lot of rocks that have been put together. And, and that's when, when you begin to realize what Jesus is talking about, it makes sense that that's why that should be the interpretation because He's talking about building his church. And the way that he's going to build his church is he's going to gather you and you and you and you, and he's going to begin to put us together, individuals, and he brings us together into community. You have a place that you're supposed to fill in the wall of the body of Christ. I believe that there are three major reasons why people stop with being all in. I think there's three big reasons why people stop this. Maybe they, they want to be all in. Maybe they used to be all in, but, but now they're just on the, on, the, on the peripheral. And God is saying you got to be all in. This is one of them here, Exodus 20, verse 25. If you use stones to build my altar, use only natural uncut stones. We were unpacking this text with the Practice, practice 9 interns just two weeks ago. If you use stones to build my altar, use only natural uncut stones. Don't shape the stones with a tool, for that would make the altar unfit for holy use. This text in Exodus 20 is a, a partner text to Matthew 16, because when the Holy Spirit was inspiring Moses to write these verses in Exodus, it was a prophetic foretelling of what Jesus would one day reveal as his plan for how he's going to build the church. 
The way that God builds the church is he takes you for as you are. And he uses you just like you are. And so this prohibition of not shaping the stone is prophetic imagery of what the church must not do when people come in. We build with who we are. And so many times churches become places that try to change who God's made them to be. Now this is why people stop being all in. Right here. Because one of the reasons is that people who love them begin to try to change the nature of their rock, and they say, no, 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 this is who I am. And what we lose sight of is that sometimes the things that are on us are not supposed to be part of the form of who we are. Because when that rock is taken out of the ground, if you've ever done any landscaping, it's a little dirty. See, sometimes we need a really good rinsing before we can get into the place where we need to be. Sometimes there's stuff that is growing on us that's been on there, so it's calcified. Anybody have any calcified attitudes in their life? I do. And we think, this is who I am. And God's saying, that's not supposed to be there. It's been there so long, you think it's part of who you are, but you need somebody who loves you with a chisel to start knocking that stuff away. And one of the reasons why people stop being all in is because we don't like the journey of accountability that begins to wash us and chip away so that what's left is the form that God intended. And we've got to be willing to trust people of character, trust people with a representation of integrity to begin to call things out in our, in our lives that need to begin to be removed so that we can walk into the fullness of the place in the body of Christ that God has for us. That cuts both ways. Sometimes the reason why people stop being all in is because, right, like what we said, churches try to change them in a way that they shouldn't. Right? This is a sacred responsibility that churches have. How are we supposed to help people change? How are we supposed to leave them the same? Some of you, you stopped being all in because you're resisting the transformation that God wants to bring into your life. John 18.10, this is the second one, John 18.10. Then Simon Peter drew a sword and slashed off the ear of Malchus, the high priest's slave. If you're familiar with the context of this, we've mentioned this many times over the history of city life. This is such a powerful prophetic picture of the church wounding the people that it's supposed to heal. This is when, when, when Jesus and the disciples are in the Garden of Gethsemane and they come to arrest him. And so Peter lashes out in defense of his friend. Peter's a prophetic picture of the church. Now you have this man, his, his ear has been cut off. And in Luke, the, we're given this incredible picture where, where Jesus actually bends down and picks this ear up and, and miraculously heals this man. You would think at that moment it would have been enough for people to say, okay, I'm out of here. Right? God is always writing a story. And so much of that story is a prophetic image for people in the future. God wants to use your life to write a story for people to understand God in the future. And these, these, these stories that we read, it, it's, it's for the history of the moment, but it's, but it's also for the imagery to help us understand things in this life. Many people stop being all in because they're still walking around from a wound from the church that they came from. They're reluctant to be all in because they're afraid they're going to get hurt again. They're reluctant to be all in because they're afraid they're going to get wounded again. We cannot let 
the ways that, yes, even sometimes churches and leaders that we trusted, how they've wounded us in the past. Not to diminish those wounds because sometimes those wounds cut deep. But Jesus wants to do for you just what he did for Malchus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He wants to heal the wound that's inside of you so that you can get back into the work that God has called you to do. You, you cannot walk in your purpose in the body of Christ without being all in. We must be all in, and I cannot let the pain of my past rob me of my purpose of my future. The other big reason that people stop being all in comes to us out of John chapter 20, verse 17. Don't cling to me, Jesus said, for I haven't yet ascended to the Father, but go find my brothers and tell them I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. We did a whole Easter message on this one year. This, this Greek word cling, it's one of my favorite Greek words. It's, called, it's the word hapto. And, and it literally means don't hold on to something as if you're never going to let it go. Jesus is not saying to Mary, you can't touch me because there's some weird spiritual difference between who you are and who I am. We know that's not true. Because when he appeared to the disciples, what's one of the things that he said to them? He said, touch, right? Touch the wound in my hand, right? He, he wanted them to know, I'm real. So, so we know this, the, the, the teaching that, that, that moves around in the church about there's, he, he, they couldn't touch him because of some spiritual difference. That's not true. What was he saying to Mary? He's saying, Mary, you're going to have a problem if you don't move forward. You've been with me for three years, and we've done some amazing things together. But if you're not careful, when I ascend to the Father and the Holy Spirit comes, if you cling to the life that we've had together for these last three years, you're going to miss out on what the future holds. For so many of us, the reason why we're not all in is because we want the future to look like it was yesterday. And sometimes that's just in practical ways. You want the church, if we could just sing shout to the Lord one more time. Revival would break out in Newport News, right? There might be a, a, a certain style of, of preaching or a certain way the room is laid out, right? There's, there's all kinds of things that are just, they're preferential. And God says to you and he says to me, don't cling to those things. Don't let what made the past amazing stop you from the future that's supposed to be even better. And sometimes it's not stuff that's preferential, Sometimes it's, it's stuff that, that, that maybe is a doctrinal emphasis that you would prefer, whether you're visiting here, whether it's City Life Church, that you would say the church should spend more time talking about this because that's what really brought me to Christ. Well, that's what brought you to Christ. But you, you've got to trust that the future might look different. And so many people, the reason why they're not all in is they're trying to leverage their participation. They use it as leverage to say that it's a negotiation. If you'll do these things that I want, then I'll be more committed. And the things that you're holding on to are the things that, yes, they made your past what it was. But those aren't the things that are going to make your future what it's supposed to be. You've got to be willing to trust that he's got new things for you. You've got to be willing to trust that just as Jesus said to Mary, he might need to say to you, stop clinging to the glory of yesterday and believe that there's glory that's waiting for you in your tomorrow. And it might look different and he might take you there from a different path. Part of this conversation about path, the pathway of gathering is that you have to remember that gathering so often is a gateway to the other pathways. You cannot build the pathway of relationship in your life if you don't gather because then you're not ever around people for those relationships to form. 
And if you're not ever around people for those relationships to form, then you're not going to have accountability in your life when you need somebody to knock some crud off of your rock. It's hard to step into moments of corporate worship if you're only ever by yourself. Worshiping by yourself is awesome. I worship by myself all the time. But the Bible has a lot to say about worshiping together in community. This pathway of gathering, one of the great gifts that it is to us, it is a gateway into so many other pathways. So, so many people aren't getting the revelation of Scripture that they need because they're not consistently year in and year out and year in and year out putting themselves in environments like this so they can have an opportunity to better understand texts in the Bible. Gathering is a gateway pathway like few others are. It's the tip of the spear for many of us in our Christian experience. Whatever is holding you back, if you need help, we're here for you. If you just need to say, I'm going to start over tomorrow, then get there. If there's a group of people that you need to get into your life for accountability, we've got those opportunities for you as well. But gathering has got to be a pathway that gets on track in your life week in and week out. We cannot, we cannot overcome the rivalry, the don't go voice inside of us if we're not willing to be all in. Lead and follow, be all in. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up and as they do, I'm going to show you, it's about a three-minute video from a, uh, uh, one of our missionaries that we support, Toby, uh, who's in China, and he tells a little bit of the story of how he ended up being a missionary that with he and his wife and their, and their family, that they're living overseas. It's an amazing story, but I'll let him tell it for himself. When I was 22 years old, my best friend Matt and I were sitting together in our apartment. And we were just talking about life and what we wanted to do after we graduated. And all of a sudden, I just had this thing hit me. And I looked at him. I said, hey, Matt, before we get married and have kids and start our careers, what if we gave a year into missions? What if we went overseas and saw what God could do? And Matt thought for a minute. And he looked at me and he said, OK, let's do it. Where are we going? I said, I don't know. I hadn't thought that far ahead yet. And he said, how about China? And that was the beginning of the adventure. A year later, we were on an airplane on our way over to China. And we had no idea what we were doing. I'll never forget that first week we were in China on Friday. We walked onto a college campus, and the huge sports building was on the right, and the big open quad was in the middle. And inside that area, there were hundreds and hundreds of college students milling around. And we didn't know what was going on, so we, we walked up there. And I didn't know who could speak English. And so I tapped a guy on the shoulder, and I said, hey, does anyone here speak English? And he looked back at me and said, this is an English corner. This is where we all get together to practice our English. You see, the cool thing to do on a Friday night in China in college is practice your English. And so we walked in there, and we were like rock stars in that group. Each of us had a group of 15 or 20 people around us, peppering us with all different kinds of questions. Where are you from? What state? Is your life like the TV show Friends? They just wanted to know everything about our lives. I'll never forget, in the middle of that conversation, one guy looked at me and he said, are you a Christian? Do you believe in Jesus? And I just began to share simply my testimony with the people around that little circle. And as I did, I saw people's eyes lighting up all around that group who were interested and were grabbing onto what I said. Afterwards, my friend Matt and I, we started jotting down the names and numbers of all those people. We saw the spark in their eyes when we started talking about Christ. And as we did... Over those next weeks and months, we just began to call those people and say, hey, Gary, you want to play basketball? 
hey, hey, Ryan, you want to go out and grab lunch? And as we hung out with them, we began to share with them about how Jesus had changed our lives. And it was amazing because we saw friend after friend after friend give their lives to Christ. Right there on that college campus, we saw a small church get started. I mean, I don't know if I'd ever led anybody to Christ in my life before. And here I am in China, and God's using me all over the place. And when that year was over, we said, this is not about us. God is doing something special among this generation in China right now. Other people have to come over and be a part of this. And so that next year, we traveled around and told people in churches and college campuses to come with us. And for some crazy reason, they came with us. And that next year, many more gave their lives to Christ in China, and, and new churches got started. And over these last 10 years since then, we've seen hundreds of young adults come to China, and hundreds and hundreds give their lives to Christ. God is changing this nation one student at a time. And that's our story. Stand with me. It's powerful, isn't it? Toby's one of the missionaries that, that we support. He's actually going to be visiting with us here in the fall. They're, they're home on furlough. And one of the reasons we're excited about supporting Toby and Michaela and their family as full-time missionaries in China is because they're creating opportunities for what we're talking about tonight. That, that there are countries in the world where it's not easy to come to church like it's easy for us. And one of the reasons why not easy is because there's no churches there. And so what Toby's doing is they're giving their life so people can gather. They're giving their life so communities of faith can be formed. We, we watched the movie as a family last night, Silence, if you've not seen that, by Martin Scorsese about the missionaries in the 1600s in Japan. If you've not seen it, you should watch it. It's not the most uplifting movie, I'm, not, I'm telling you now, that you're ever going to see. But I think that it might stop us from ever using the word that was hard ever again especially when it comes to anything in regards to church and life and community together. People have paid a price for centuries so we can do what we're doing together tonight. And we have a responsibility to pay whatever price God is asking of us. So 100 years from now, 200 years from now, 1,000 years from now, if Christ hasn't come back, come on, have we paid the price that we're supposed to pay so there's a momentum of gathering that's still moving through this world? that brings people together in worship of God. Father, as we step into this moment of worship, as we close our service, God, I, we, we pray together that you would move our hearts to make whatever sacrifice, to make whatever change, to begin to engage our will, to, to set aside whatever victim mentality that we've begun to embrace that there would be a righteous courage that would well up inside of us to begin to do the work of these 12 pathways. In Jesus' name, come on, let's worship together.